Chapters 32 and 33 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapters 32 and 33. Chapter 32 the ritual of Adonis. At the festivals of Adonis, which were held in Western Asia and in Greek lands, the death of the god was annually mourned, with a bitter wailing chiefly by women. Images of him, dressed to resemble corpses, were carried out as to burial, and then thrown into the sea or into springs, and in some places his revival was celebrated on the following day but at different places the ceremonies varied somewhat in the manner and apparently also in the season of their celebration. At Alexandria images of Aphrodite and Adonis were displayed on two couches. Beside them were set ripe fruits of all kinds, cakes, plants growing in flower-pots, and green bowers twined with anise. The marriage of the lovers was celebrated one day, and on the morrow women attired as mourners with streaming hair and bared breasts, bore the image of the dead Adonis to the seashore, and committed it to the waves. Yet they sorrowed not without hope, for they sang that the lost one would come back again. The date at which this Alexandrian ceremony was observed is not expressly stated, but from the mention of the ripe fruits it has been inferred that it took place in late summer. In the great Phoenician sanctuary of Astarte at Byblus, the death of Adonis was annually mourned to the shrill wailing notes of the flute, with weeping, lamentation, and beating of the breast. But next day he was believed to come to life again, and ascend up to heaven in the presence of his worshippers. The disconsolate believers, left behind on earth, shaved their heads as the Egyptians did on the death of the divine bull Apis. Women who could not bring themselves to sacrifice their beautiful tresses had to give themselves up to strangers on a certain day of the festival, and to dedicate to Astarte the wages of their shame. This Phoenician festival appears to have been a vernal one, for its date was determined by the discoloration of the river Adonis, and this has been observed by modern travellers to occur in spring. At that season the red earth, washed down from the mountains by the rain, tinges the water of the river, and even the sea, for a great way, with a blood-red hue, and the crimson stain was believed to be the blood of Adonis, annually wounded to death by the boar on Mount Lebanon. Again the scarlet anemone is said to have sprung from the blood of Adonis, or to have been stained by it, and, as the anemone blooms in Syria about Easter, this may be thought to show that the festival of Adonis, or at least one of his festivals, was held in spring. The name of the flower is probably derived from Naaman, darling, which seems to have been an epithet of Adonis. The Arabs still call the anemone Wounds of the Naaman. The red rose also was said to owe its hue to the same sad occasion, for Aphrodite, hastening to her wounded lover, trod on a bush of white roses. The cruel thorns tore her tender flesh, and her sacred blood dyed the white roses for ever red. It would be idle, perhaps, to lay much weight on evidence drawn from the calendar of flowers, and in particular 
to press an argument so fragile as the bloom of the rose. Yet, so far as it counts at all, the tale which links the damask rose with the death of Adonis points to a summer rather than to a spring celebration of his passion. In Attica, certainly, the festival fell at the height of summer. For the fleet which Athens fitted out against Syracuse, and by the destruction of which her power was permanently crippled, sailed at midsummer, and by an ominous coincidence the sombre rites of Adonis were being celebrated at the very time. As the troops marched down to the harbour to embark, the streets through which they passed were lined with coffins and corpse-like effigies, and the air was rent with the noise of women wailing for the dead Adonis. The circumstances cast a gloom over the sailing of the most splendid armament that Athens ever sent to sea. Many ages afterwards, when the Emperor Julian made his first entry into Antioch, he found in like manner the gay, the luxurious capital of the East plunged in mimic grief for the annual death of Adonis, and, if he had any presentiment of coming evil, the voices of lamentation which struck upon his ear must have seemed to sound his knell. The resemblance of these ceremonies to the Indian and European ceremonies, which I have described elsewhere, is obvious. In particular, apart from the somewhat doubtful date of its celebration, the Alexandrian ceremony is almost identical with the Indian. In both of them, the marriage of two divine beings, whose affinity with vegetation seems indicated by the fresh plants with which they are surrounded, is celebrated in effigy, and the effigies are afterwards mourned over and thrown into the water. From the similarity of these customs to each other, and to the spring and midsummer customs of modern Europe, we should naturally expect that they all admit of a common explanation. Hence, if the explanation which I have adopted of the latter is correct, the ceremony of the death and resurrection of Adonis must also have been a dramatic representation of the decay and revival of plant life. The inference thus based on the resemblance of the customs is confirmed by the following features in the legend and ritual of Adonis. His affinity with vegetation comes out at once in the common story of his birth. He was said to have been born from a myrrh-tree, the bark of which bursting, after a ten-month's gestation, allowed the lovely infant to come forth. According to some, a boar rent the bark with his tusk, and so opened a passage for the babe. A faint rationalistic colour was given to the legend, by saying that his mother was a woman named Myrrh, who had been turned into a myrrh-tree soon after she had conceived the child. The use of myrrh as incense at the festival of Adonis may have given rise to the fable. We have seen that incense was burnt at the corresponding Babylonian rites, just as it was burnt by the idolatrous Hebrews in honour of the Queen of Heaven, who was no other than Astarte. Again, the story that Adonis spent half, or according to others a third, of the year in the lower world, and the rest of it in the upper world, is explained most simply and naturally by supposing that he represented vegetation, especially the corn, which lies buried in the earth half the year, and reappears above the ground the other half. Certainly, of the annual phenomena of nature, there is none which suggests so obviously the idea of death and resurrection as the disappearance and reappearance of vegetation in autumn and spring. 
Adonis has been taken for the sun, but there is nothing in the sun's annual course within the temperate and tropical zones to suggest that he is dead for half or a third of the year, and alive for the other half or two-thirds. He might indeed be conceived as weakened in winter, but dead he could not be thought to be. His daily reappearance contradicts the supposition. Within the Arctic Circle, where the sun annually disappears for a continuous period, which varies from twenty-four hours to six months, according to the latitude, his yearly death and resurrection would certainly be an obvious idea. But no one except the unfortunate astronomer Bailey has maintained that the Adonis worship came from the Arctic regions. On the other hand, the annual death and revival of vegetation is a conception which readily presents itself to men in every stage of savagery and civilization and the vastness of the scale on which this ever-recurring decay and regeneration takes place, together with man's intimate dependence on it for subsistence, combine to render it the most impressive annual occurrence in nature, at least within the temperate zones. It is no wonder that a phenomenon so important, so striking, and so universal, should, by suggesting similar ideas, have given rise to similar rites in many lands. We may, therefore, accept as probable an explanation of the Adonis worship which accords so well with the facts of nature and with the analogy of similar rites in other lands. Moreover, the explanation is countenanced by a considerable body of opinion among the ancients themselves, who again and again interpreted the dying and reviving God as the reaped and sprouting grain. The character of Tammuz, or Adonis, as a corn spirit, comes out plainly in an account of his festival given by an Arabic writer of the 10th century. In describing the rites and sacrifices observed at the different seasons of the year by the heathen Syrians of Haram, he says, Tammuz, July. In the middle of this month is the festival of El-Bugat, that is, of the weeping women, and this is the Ta'uz festival which is celebrated in honour of the god Ta'uz. The women bewail him, because his lord slew him so cruelly, ground his bones in a mill, and then scattered them to the wind. The women, during this festival, eat nothing which has been ground in a mill, but limit their diet to steeped wheat, sweet vetches, dates, raisins, and the like. Ta'uz, who is no other than Tammuz, is here like Burns's John Barleycorn, they wasted o'er a scorching flame the marrow of his bones, but a miller used him worst of all, for he crushed him between two stones. This concentration, so to say, of the nature of Adonis upon the cereal crops is characteristic of the state of culture reached by his worshippers in historical times. They had left the nomadic life of the wandering hunter and herdsman far behind them, for ages they had been settled on the land, and had depended for their subsistence mainly on the products of tillage. The berries and roots of the wilderness, the grass of the pastures, which had been matters of vital importance to their ruder forefathers, were now of little moment to them. More and more their thoughts and energies were engrossed by the staple of their life, the corn. More and more, accordingly, the propitiation of the deities of fertility in general, and of the corn-spirit in particular, tended to become the central feature of their religion. The aim they set before themselves in celebrating the rites was thoroughly practical. It was no vague poetical sentiment which prompted them to hail with joy the rebirth of vegetation, and to mourn its decline. 
Hunger, felt or feared, was the mainspring of the worship of Adonis. It has been suggested by Father Lagrange that the mourning for Adonis was essentially a harvest rite designed to propitiate the corn god, who was then either perishing under the sickles of the reapers, or being trodden to death under the hoofs of the oxen on the threshing floor. While the men slew him, the women wept crocodile tears at home to appease his natural indignation by a show of grief for his death. The theory fits in well with the dates of the festivals, which fell in spring or summer, for spring and summer, not autumn, are the seasons of the barley and wheat harvests in the lands which worshipped Adonis. Further, the hypothesis is confirmed by the practice of the Egyptian reapers, who lamented, calling upon Isis, when they cut the first corn. And it is recommended by the analogous customs of many hunting tribes, who testify great respect for the animals which they kill and eat. Thus interpreted, the death of Adonis is not the natural decay of vegetation in general under the summer heat or the winter cold. It is the violent destruction of the corn by man, who cuts it down on the field, stamps it to pieces on the threshing floor, and grinds it to powder in the mill. That this was indeed the principal aspect in which Adonis presented himself in later times to the agricultural people of the Levant may be admitted, but whether from the beginning he had been the corn and nothing but the corn may be doubted. At an earlier period he may have been to the herdsman, above all, the tender herbage which sprouts after rain, offering rich pasture to the lean and hungry cattle. Earlier still he may have embodied the spirit of the nuts and berries which the autumn woods yield to the savage hunter and his squaw and just as the husbandman must propitiate the spirit of the corn which he consumes, so the herdsman must appease the spirit of the grass and leaves which his cattle munch, and the hunter must soothe the spirit of the roots which he digs, and of the fruits which he gathers from the bough. In all cases the propitiation of the injured and angry sprite would naturally comprise elaborate excuses and apologies, accompanied by loud lamentations at his decease, whenever, through some deplorable accident or necessity, he happened to be murdered as well as robbed. Only we must bear in mind that the savage hunter and herdsman of those early days had probably not yet attained to the abstract idea of vegetation in general, and that accordingly so far as Adonis existed for them at all, he must have been the Adon, or Lord, of each individual tree and plant, rather than a personification of vegetable life as a whole. Thus there would be as many Adonises as there were trees and shrubs, and each of them might expect to receive satisfaction for any damage done to his person or property. And year by year, when the trees were deciduous, every Adonis would seem to bleed to death with the red leaves of autumn, and to come to life again with the fresh green of spring. There is some reason to think that in early times Adonis was sometimes personated by a living man, who died a violent death in the character of the god. Further, there is evidence which goes to show that among the agricultural peoples of the eastern Mediterranean, the corn-spirit, by whatever name he was known, was often represented, year by year, by human victims slain on the harvest-field. If that were so, it seems likely that the propitiation of the corn-spirit would tend to fuse to some extent with the worship of the dead, 
for the spirits of these victims might be thought to return to life in the ears which they had fattened with their blood, and to die a second death at the reaping of the corn. Now the ghosts of those who have perished by violence are surly, and apt to wreak their vengeance on their slayers whenever an opportunity offers. Hence the attempt to appease the souls of the slaughtered victims would naturally blend, at least in the popular conception, with the attempt to pacify the slain corn spirit. And as the dead came back in the sprouting corn, so they might be thought to return in the spring flowers, waked from their long sleep by the soft vernal airs. They had been laid to their rest under the sod. What more natural than to imagine that the violets and the hyacinths, the roses and the anemones, sprang from their dust, were empurpled or incarnadined by their blood, and contained some portion of their spirit. I sometimes think that never blows so red the rose as where some buried Caesar bled, that every hyacinth the garden wears dropped in her lap from some once lovely head. And this reviving herb, whose tender green fledges the river-lip on which we lean, ah, lean upon it lightly, for who knows, from what once lovely lip it springs unseen. In the summer after the Battle of Landen, the most sanguinary battle of the seventeenth century in Europe, the earth, saturated with the blood of twenty thousand slain, broke forth into millions of poppies, and the traveller who passed that vast sheet of scarlet might well fancy that the earth had indeed given up her dead. At Athens a great commemoration of the dead fell in spring, about the middle of March, when the early flowers are in bloom. Then the dead were believed to rise from their graves and go about the streets, vainly endeavouring to enter the temples and dwellings, which were barred against these perturbed spirits with ropes, buckthorn and pitch. The name of the festival, according to the most obvious and natural interpretation, means the Festival of Flowers, and the title would fit well with the substance of the ceremonies if at that season the poor ghosts were indeed thought to creep from the narrow house with the opening flowers. There may therefore be a measure of truth in the theory of Renan, who saw in the Adonis worship a dreamy voluptuous cult of death, conceived not as the king of terrors, but as an insidious enchanter who lures his victim to himself and lulls them into an eternal sleep. The infinite charm of nature in the Lebanon, he thought, lends itself to religious emotions of this sensuous, visionary sort, hovering vaguely between pain and pleasure, between slumber and tears. It would doubtless be a mistake to attribute to Syrian peasants the worship of a conception so purely abstract as that of death in general. Yet it may be true that in their simple minds the thought of the reviving spirit of vegetation was blent with the very concrete notion of the ghosts of the dead, who come to life again in spring days with the early flowers, with the tender green of the corn and the many tinted blossoms of the trees. Thus their views of the death and resurrection of nature would be coloured by their views of the death and resurrection of man, by their personal sorrows and hopes and fears. In like manner, we cannot doubt that Renan's theory of Adonis was itself deeply tinged by passionate memories, memories of the slumber akin to death, which sealed his own eyes on the slopes of the Lebanon, memories of the sister who sleeps in the land of Adonis, never again to wake with the anemones and the roses.
Chapter thirty three The Gardens of Adonis Perhaps the best proof that Adonis was a deity of vegetation, and especially of the corn, is furnished by the gardens of Adonis, as they were called. These were baskets or pots filled with earth, in which wheat, barley, lettuces, fennel, and various kinds of flowers were sown and tended for eight days, chiefly or exclusively by women. Fostered by the sun's heat, the plants shot up rapidly, but having no root, they withered as rapidly away, and at the end of the eight days were carried out with the images of the dead Adonis, and flung with them into the sea or into springs. These gardens of Adonis are most naturally interpreted as representatives of Adonis, or manifestations of his power. They represented him, true to his original nature, in vegetable form, while the images of him, with which they were carried out and cast into the water, portrayed him in his later human shape. All these Adonis ceremonies, if I am right, were originally intended as charms to promote the growth or revival of vegetation and the principle by which they were supposed to produce this effect was homeopathic or imitative magic. For ignorant people suppose that by mimicking the effect which they desire to produce, they actually help to produce it. Thus, by sprinkling water, they make rain, by lighting a fire, they make sunshine, and so on. Similarly, by mimicking the growth of crops, they hope to ensure a good harvest. The rapid growth of the wheat and barley in the gardens of Adonis was intended to make the corn shoot up, and the throwing of the gardens and of the images into the water was a charm to secure a due supply of fertilising rain. The same, I take it, was the object of throwing the effigies of death and the carnival into water in the corresponding ceremonies of modern Europe. Certainly the custom of drenching with water a leaf-clad person, who undoubtedly personifies vegetation, is still resorted to in Europe for the express purpose of producing rain. Similarly, the custom of throwing water on the last corn cut at harvest, or on the person who brings it home, a custom observed in Germany and France, until lately in England and Scotland, is in some places practised with the avowed intent to procure rain for the next year's crops. Thus, in Wallachia, and amongst the Romanians in Transylvania, when a girl is bringing home a crown made of the last ears of corn cut at harvest, all who meet her hasten to throw water on her, and two farm servants are placed at the door for the purpose, for they believe that if this were not done, the crops next year would perish from drought. At the spring ploughing in Prussia, when the ploughmen and sowers returned in the evening from their work in the fields, the farmer's wife and the servants used to splash water over them. The ploughmen and sowers retorted by seizing every one, throwing them into the pond, and ducking them under the water. The farmer's wife might claim exemption on payment of a forfeit, but every one else had to be ducked. By observing this custom, they hoped to ensure a due supply of rain for the seed. The opinion that the gardens of Adonis are essentially charms to promote the growth of vegetation, especially of the crops, and that they belong to the same class of customs as those spring and midsummer folk customs of modern Europe, which I have described elsewhere, does not rest for its evidence merely on the intrinsic probability of the case. Fortunately, we are able to show that gardens of Adonis, 
if we may use the expression in a general sense, are still planted, first by a primitive race at their sowing season, and second by European peasants at midsummer. Amongst the Oraons and Mundas of Bengal, when the time comes for planting out the rice, which has been grown in seed-beds, a party of young people of both sexes go to the forest and cut a young karma-tree, or the branch of one. Bearing it in triumph, they return, dancing, singing, and beating drums, and plant it in the middle of the village dancing-ground. A sacrifice is offered to the tree, and next morning the youth of both sexes, linked arm in arm, dance in a great circle round the karma tree, which is decked with strips of coloured cloth and sham bracelets and necklets of plaited straw. As a preparation for the festival, the daughters of the headman of the village cultivate blades of barley in a peculiar way. The seed is sown in moist, sandy soil, mixed with turmeric, and the blades sprout and unfold of a pale yellow or primrose colour. On the day of the festival, the girls take up these blades and carry them in baskets to the dancing-ground, where, prostrating themselves reverentially, they place some of the plants before the karma-tree. Finally, the karma-tree is taken away and thrown into a stream or tank. The meaning of planting these barley blades and then presenting them to the karma-tree is hardly open to question. Trees are supposed to exercise a quickening influence upon the growth of crops, and amongst the very people in question, the mundas or mundaris, the grove deities are held responsible for the crops. Therefore, when at the season for planting out the rice the mundas bring in a tree and treat it with so much respect, their object can only be to foster thereby the growth of the rice which is about to be planted out and the custom of causing barley-blades to sprout rapidly, and then presenting them to the tree, must be intended to subserve the same purpose, perhaps by reminding the tree-spirit of his duty towards the crops, and stimulating his activity by this visible example of rapid vegetable growth. The throwing of the karma-tree into the water is to be interpreted as a rain-charm, whether the barley blades are also thrown into the water is not said, but if my interpretation of the custom is right, probably they are so. A distinction between this Bengal custom and the Greek rites of Adonis is that in the former the tree spirit appears in his original form as a tree, whereas in the Adonis worship he appears in human form, represented as a dead man though his vegetable nature is indicated by the gardens of Adonis, which are, so to say, a secondary manifestation of his original power as a tree-spirit. Gardens of Adonis are cultivated also by the Hindus, with the intention, apparently, of ensuring the fertility both of the earth and of mankind. Thus at Udaipur in Rajputana, a festival is held in honour of Guri, or Isani, the goddess of abundance. The rites begin when the sun enters the sign of the ram, the opening of the Hindu year. An image of the goddess Guri is made of earth, and a smaller one of her husband Iswari, and the two are placed together. A small trench is next dug, barley is sown in it, and the ground watered and heated artificially till the grain sprouts, when the women dance round it hand in hand, invoking the blessing of Guri on their husbands. After that the young corn is taken up and distributed by the women to the men, who wear it in their turbans. 
In these rites the distribution of the barley shoots to the men and the invocation of a blessing on their husbands by the wives point clearly to the desire of offspring as one motive for observing the custom. The same motive probably explains the use of gardens of Adonis at the marriage of Brahmans in the Madras presidency. Seeds of five or nine sorts are mixed and sown in earthen pots, which are made specially for the purpose, and are filled with earth. Bride and bridegroom water the seeds both morning and evening for four days, and on the fifth day the seedlings are thrown, like the real gardens of Adonis, into a tank or river. In Sardinia the gardens of Adonis are still planted in connection with the great midsummer festival which bears the name of St. John. At the end of March, or on the 1st of April, a young man of the village presents himself to a girl, and asks her to be his comare, gossip or sweetheart, offering to be her compare. The invitation is considered as an honour by the girl's family, and is gladly accepted. At the end of May the girl makes a pot of the bark of the cork tree, fills it with earth, and sows a handful of wheat and barley in it. The pot being placed in the sun, and often watered, the corn sprouts rapidly, and has a good head by Midsummer Eve, St. John's Eve, the 23rd of June. The pot is then called Erme, or Neneri. On St. John's Day, the young man and the girl, dressed in their best, accompanied by a long retinue, and preceded by children gambling and frolicking, move in procession to a church outside the village. Here they break the pot by throwing it against the door of the church. Then they sit down in a ring on the grass and eat eggs and herbs to the music of flutes. Wine is mixed in a cup and passed round, each one drinking as it passes. Then they join hands and sing Sweethearts of St. John, Compare e Comari di San Giovanni, over and over again, the flutes playing the while. When they tire of singing, they stand up and dance gaily in a ring till evening. This is the general Sardinian custom. As practised at Ozieri, it has some special features. In May the pots are made of cork bark, and planted with corn, as already described. Then, on the eve of St. John, the window-sills are draped with rich cloths, on which the pots are placed, adorned with crimson and blue silk, and ribbons of various colours. On each of the pots they used formerly to place a statuette or cloth doll dressed as a woman, or a Priapus-like figure made of paste, but this custom, rigorously forbidden by the church, has fallen into disuse. The village swains go about in a troop to look at the pots and their decorations, and to wait for the girls, who assemble on the public square to celebrate the festival. Here a great bonfire is kindled, round which they dance and make merry. Those who wish to be sweethearts of St. John act as follows. The young man stands on one side of the bonfire, and the girl on the other, and they, in a manner, join hands, by each grasping one end of a long stick, which they pass three times backwards and forwards across the fire, thus thrusting their hands thrice rapidly into the flames. This seals their relationship to each other. Dancing and music go on till late at night. The correspondence of these Sardinian pots of grain to the gardens of Adonis seems complete, and the images formerly placed in them answer to the images of Adonis which accompanied his gardens. 
Customs of the same sort are observed at the same season in Sicily. Pairs of boys and girls become gossips of St. John on St. John's Day by drawing each a hair from his or her head and performing various ceremonies over them. Thus they tie the hairs together and throw them up in the air or exchange them over a potsherd, which they afterwards break in two, preserving each a fragment with pious care. The tie formed in the latter way is supposed to last for life. In some parts of Sicily, the gossips of St. John present each other with plates of sprouting corn, lentils and canary seed, which have been planted forty days before the festival. The one who receives the plate pulls a stalk of the young plants, binds it with a ribbon, and preserves it among his or her greatest treasures, restoring the platter to the giver. At Catania the gossips exchange pots of basil and great cucumbers. The girls tend the basil, and the thicker it grows, the more it is prized. In these midsummer customs of Sardinia and Sicily, it is possible that, as Mr. R. Vinch supposes, St. John has replaced Adonis. We have seen that the rites of Tammuz, or Adonis, were commonly celebrated about midsummer. According to Jerome, their date was June. In Sicily, gardens of Adonis are still sown in spring, as well as in summer, from which we may perhaps infer that Sicily, as well as Syria, celebrated of old a vernal festival of the dead and risen God. At the approach of Easter, Sicilian women sow wheat, lentils, and canary seed in plates, which they keep in the dark and water every two days. The plants soon shoot up, the stalks are tied together with red ribbons, and the plates containing them are placed on the sepulchres, which, with the effigies of the dead Christ, are made up in Catholic and Greek churches on Good Friday, just as the gardens of Adonis were placed on the grave of the dead Adonis. The practice is not confined to Sicily, for it is observed also at Cosenza in Calabria, and perhaps in other places. The whole custom, sepulchres as well as plates of sprouting grain, may be nothing but a continuation, under a different name, of the worship of Adonis. Nor are these Sicilian and Calabrian customs the only Easter ceremonies which resemble the rites of Adonis. Quote, During the whole of Good Friday, a waxen effigy of the dead Christ is exposed to view in the middle of the Greek churches, and is covered with fervent kisses by the thronging crowd, while the whole church rings with melancholy, monotonous dirges. Late in the evening, when it has grown quite dark, this waxen image is carried by the priests into the street on a bier adorned with lemons, roses, jessamine, and other flowers, and there begins a grand procession of the multitude, who move in serried ranks with slow and solemn step through the whole town. Every man carries his taper and breaks into doleful lamentation. At all the houses which the procession passes, there are seated women with censers to fumigate the marching host. Thus the community solemnly buries its Christ, as if he had just died. At last the waxen image is again deposited in the church, and the same lugubrious chants echo anew. These lamentations, accompanied by a strict fast, continue till midnight on Saturday. As the clock strikes twelve, the bishop appears and announces the glad tidings that Christ is risen, to which the crowd replies, He is risen indeed. 
and at once the whole city bursts into an uproar of joy, which finds vent in shrieks and shouts, in the endless discharge of carronades and muskets, and the explosion of fireworks of every sort. In the very same hour people plunge from the extremity of the fast into the enjoyment of the Easter lamb and neat wine. End of quotation. In like manner, the Catholic Church has been accustomed to bring before its followers, in a visible form, the death and resurrection of the Redeemer. Such sacred dramas are well fitted to impress the lively imagination, and to stir the warm feelings of a susceptible southern race, to whom the pomp and pageantry of Catholicism are more congenial than to the colder temperament of the Teutonic peoples. When we reflect how often the Church has skilfully contrived to plant the seeds of the new faith on the old stock of paganism, we may surmise that the Easter celebration of the dead and risen Christ was grafted upon a similar celebration of the dead and risen Adonis, which, as we have seen reason to believe, was celebrated in Syria at the same season. The type, created by Greek artists, of the sorrowful goddess with her dying lover in her arms, resembles, and may have been the model of, the Pietà of Christian art, the virgin with the dead body of her divine son in her lap, of which the most celebrated example is the one by Michael Angelo in St. Peter's. That noble group, in which the living sorrow of the mother contrasts so wonderfully with the languor of death in the sun, is one of the finest compositions in marble. Ancient Greek art has bequeathed to us few works so beautiful, and none so pathetic. In this connection a well-known statement of Jerome may not be without significance. He tells us that Bethlehem, the traditionary birthplace of the Lord, was shaded by a grove of that still older Syrian lord, Adonis, and that where the infant Jesus had wept, the lover of Venus was bewailed. Though he does not expressly say so, Jerome seems to have thought that the grove of Adonis had been planted by the heathen, after the birth of Christ, for the purpose of defiling the sacred spot. In this he may have been mistaken. If Adonis was indeed, as I have argued, the spirit of the corn, a more suitable name for his dwelling-place could hardly be found than Bethlehem, the House of Bread, and he may well have been worshipped there, at his House of Bread, long ages before the birth of him who said, I am the Bread of Life. Even on the hypothesis that Adonis followed, rather than preceded, Christ at Bethlehem, the choice of his sad figure to divert the allegiance of Christians from their Lord cannot but strike us as eminently appropriate when we remember the similarity of the rites which commemorated the death and resurrection of the two. One of the earliest seats of the worship of the new God was Antioch, and at Antioch, as we have seen, the death of the old God was annually celebrated with great solemnity a circumstance which attended the entrance of Julian into the city at the time of the Adonis festival, may perhaps throw some light on the date of its celebration. When the emperor drew near to the city, he was received with public prayers, as if he had been a god, and he marvelled at the voices of a great multitude who cried that the star of salvation had dawned upon them in the east. This may doubtless have been no more than a fulsome compliment paid by an obsequious oriental crowd to the Roman emperor. But it is also possible 
that the rising of a bright star regularly gave the signal for the festival, and that, as chance would have it, the star emerged above the rim of the eastern horizon at the very moment of the emperor's approach. The coincidence, if it happened, could hardly fail to strike the imagination of a superstitious and excited multitude, who might thereupon hail the great man as the deity whose coming was announced by the sign in the heavens. Or the emperor may have mistaken for a greeting to himself the shouts which were addressed to the star. Now Astarte, the divine mistress of Adonis, was identified with the planet Venus, and her changes from a morning to an evening star were carefully noted by the Babylonian astronomers, who drew omens from her alternate appearance and disappearance. Hence we may conjecture that the festival of Adonis was regularly timed to coincide with the appearance of Venus as the morning or evening star. But the star which the people of Antioch saluted at the festival was seen in the east. Therefore, if it was indeed Venus, it can only have been the morning star. At Afaka in Syria, where there was a famous temple of Astarte, the signal for the celebration of the rites was apparently given by the flashing of a meteor, which on a certain day fell like a star from the top of Mount Lebanon into the river Adonis. The meteor was thought to be Astarte herself, and its flight through the air might naturally be interpreted as the descent of the amorous goddess to the arms of her lover. At Antioch and elsewhere, the appearance of the morning star on the day of the festival may in like manner have been hailed as the coming of the goddess of love, to wake her dead lemon from his earthy bed. If that were so, we may surmise that it was the morning star which guided the wise men of the east to Bethlehem, the hallowed spot which heard, in the language of Jerome, the weeping of the infant Christ and the lament for Adonis. End of chapter 33